everybody, Cora here. Welcome back to Rev on Air, the Rev on Air podcast, and to my second episode in our collaborative series with Farmers Footprint on the power of regeneration to help heal people and planet. This next guest is so legendary in the food space that she almost needs no introduction, but I will be giving you all a brief overview anyway. Labeled by many as the mother of the slow food movement, Alice Waters is the founder of Chez Panisse and the Edible Schoolyard, and I can't think of a better guest to follow Zach Bush in terms of speaking to a regenerative movement in food. But first, I want to say a quick thank you to our sponsors for making this episode possible. Vivo Barefoot is more than just a footwear line. They promote a natural lifestyle and are on a mission to reconnect people into the natural world and human natural potential from the ground up, foot by foot, person by person, with their incredible B Corps certified shoes. Vivo Barefoot was founded by modern day cobblers Galahad and Asher Clark, two cousins from seven generations of cobblers. They've traveled the world and worked with its best shoemakers, modern and indigenous. And after all that exploring, they came back to the beginning, to the principle of barefoot design and the original purpose of shoes, simply protection from cuts, cold and heat. They're on a quest to make the perfect footwear because the less shoes we make, the better it is for our feet, human movement and planetary health. Get 15% off your first Vivo Barefoot order with Revonver15 at www.vivobarefoot.com. That's R-E-V-E-N-V-E-R-T-1-5 at www.vivobarefoot.com. This episode is also brought to you by our friends at Milky Oat. Currently servicing the San Francisco Bay and Los Angeles areas, Milky Oat provides postpartum nourishment for new mothers and parents through organic meals, snacks, and elixirs to help support recovery after birth. They use only the best organic and sustainably sourced ingredients for all of their dishes, and each meal is carefully thought out to ensure the new parents are getting the nutrients they need to support themselves and baby during the first few weeks. To find out more about Milky Oat and to explore their services, head to milkyoat.com, M-I-L-K-Y-O-A-T.com. So now on to my conversation with Alice Waters of Chez Panisse and Edible Schoolyard. Alice's philosophy of using only fresh, locally grown organic ingredients and her advocacy of sustainable agriculture has made her one of America's most influential chefs and proponents of a regenerative food system. She is the founder of a restaurant that many of you will have heard of, Chez Panisse in 1971, which to this day continues to be one of America's most acclaimed restaurants. She was the first woman named Best Chef in America in 1992 by the James Beard Foundation, and her work has only grown since then. She went on to found the Yale Sustainable Food Project and the Sustainable Food Project at the Academy of America in Rome, and is vice president of Slow Food International, a nonprofit organization that promotes local food tradition. She's also the author of eight books. Alice Waters has made the connection between education that allows each child to thrive and her love of fresh cuisine and respect for the environment through her work with Edible Schoolyard. Her passions have inspired people of all ages and have reminded us the benefit of bringing nature into our aspects of living using food as her vehicle. Today, Alice and I discuss the regenerative movement in terms of food, farming, restaurants, and education. We talk about pleasure and taste and beauty and all of the reasons why these things come to us through a more sustainable agricultural system. Her warmth, wisdom, and passion for a better food movement is infectious, and I hope you all love this conversation as much as I did. Now, over to the iconic Alice Waters. So, 
Hi, Alice. Thank you so much for coming on. And it's just a true honor to get to speak to you and and speak to you about the regeneration of, of something that is so important, which is our food systems and the future of food. But I guess rewinding way back into the history of how we got here and in particular how you got here, I, I always just love to ask our guests to start a little bit at the beginning and speak to the moment that their passions sort of evolved. So for you, can you speak a little bit about when you became a food lover and how that that journey began? I think it probably began in my parents' victory garden when I was born in New Jersey and I grew up in that backyard garden and tasted my first strawberry when I was about three. <laughs> But they kept that garden their whole life. Um, they kept it because it made eating affordable for their family, for their, our family of six. And uh, they also fell in love with gardening and ended up ultimately moved out to California and to Berkeley and never let that go of that garden. So I, I know that I just learned something osmosis. Uh, my mother wasn't a great cook. And of course, during the winter, you ate winter food. And I understood that perfectly and waited very patiently for the corn and tomatoes of the summer, or impatiently, I should say. <laughs> But they stored things during the winter. So I learned something very important about local food. And I never had anything, well, we, no one in this country or around the world had food that was not local. There was no sort of distribution even across the United States. At Christmas, maybe I'd get an orange or my father would get some dates from California. But other than that, we ate very strictly the food that was produced where we lived. Yeah. And so that's really why I think we can come back there. So we did it. 100% and it's funny we my husband and I moved from London to a farmhouse in Maine last year and he started a garden and it's almost become obsessive for him this connection to his garden and we're talking like a city boy from London who works in graphic design and now you know like you said picking something like a tomato it's a meaningful act to him that we wait for, for them to ripen. And the, exactly. you know, this is, and it's a beautiful moment. So how do you think we kind of got away from this, you know, from the victory gardens? And it, it's not that long ago, you know, this was your childhood. <laughs> we're eating like this. And, you know, how do you think that we, <laughs> exactly. Well, I wrote a book about this because I wanted to know myself. And I worked on this book for two years with two good writer friends of mine. 
And we questioned, how could this have happened in such a short period of time from about 1950, right after World War Two, uh, I mean, we never had pesticides in the ground ever. And we only ate food um, really uh, from right where we lived, except for coffee, tea, and spices. We did import those before 1950. But my theory, and I think it's really been confirmed that once we had that introduction of fast food and that corporate <laughs> thinking about food and the industrial farms, we were really indoctrinated by those values that came with the food. More is better, time is money. I want whatever I want whenever I want it and should have it. The idea of availability, but also the idea of uniformity. That was never part of eating food <laughs> before 1950, but it all had to look the same. Same size, same look. And I guess the big ones for me are that food should be fast, cheap, and easy. And since the beginning of civilization, it's never been that. It's always been the most important thing you spent money on and time on. And you cared about the people who farmed. They were, they were very important to you. It's like teachers and farmers are really our most valuable citizens. And yet both of those people were pushed to the side with the industrial food system. So I, I know that I absolutely grew up with these ideas. Um, um, that somehow, you know, just um, the picking of the food when it's right, because you can't have taste unless you have ripe food and you eat it right then. I mean, food that's grown in Mexico or avocados that are picked when they're unripe, never taste. Even if they ripen up, they don't have the flavor of avocados that are picked off the tree and eat. Yeah. And I think it's so interesting because, you know, I know that you spent time in Paris as a young woman and I, I actually went to university there. So I lived there for five years. And when I was listening to other conversations you've given, it was so funny because it made me relive my own experiences of going there. And as a young woman growing up in America, I'd never gone to farmer's markets or thought about, you know, engaging with my local farmer. And then all of a sudden I was living somewhere where even friends of my, my age cooked, you know, and 
going, you know, when you're in your early 20s in America, but, you know, at least where, where I was, nobody was throwing dinner parties or cooking. It was, you know, let's get a pizza and go out. And then all of a sudden I'm in Paris and, and all these things that you spoke about, you know, all of a sudden like food mattered in such a huge way and ingredients mattered in such a huge way. And can you speak a little bit about your time there and how, how it did, you know, sort of reinforce this idea that would eventually lead you down the line of starting Chez Panisse? Well, all of those values were really present in 1965 in France. It was a slow food country. I always say that I don't even think they had olive oil in the stores in Paris. That was south of France. We had butter (laughs) in Paris. But I was... I think really prepared from having been part of the free speech movement and the activism of Berkeley in the 60s to open my mind to being in France. And probably the really missing piece for me was taste. I had never tasted food like it did in France. I wondered why people waited in line to get a baguette. I mean, 20 people in line. It took, a, you know, 20 minutes or a half an hour to get a baguette. And then one day I waited in line. <laughs> and, and I went back and every day and waited in line. But it was that kind of transformational experience around taste. And people can't forget when you have that experience in the right environment. It's, it's like at the table. Everybody sat at the table to eat together. And I was with students and there were really affordable little restaurants. And we would go and we'd talk about the politics of the day. And, and very discriminating about what we should order and what was absolutely in season because that's what was going on with everybody. And the the taste, and you probably heard this, that I had a fraise de bois. There's wild strawberries. And I I just, (laughs) I said, I want another bowl. They were expensive. Yes, they were. And I asked about how I could get more. And they said you had to go up in the mountains and you had to pick them when they were wild and ripe. And it just, I couldn't believe it. And I did go up in the mountains with rats and I did find them. But they are so special when you just have that moment of fraise de bois. When they're over, they're over. And you think about what's coming next. And you won't have fraise de bois for another year. But you're going to go looking next year, for sure. And it's so, you know, and you, you speak about it because it's, 
it's what I'm noticing here. Like I made a pledge not to, to buy imported cut flowers anymore. And it's just, we're, we're in lily season here in Maine and I'd forgotten what lilies smell like. And now I appreciate it. I've got some on my desk right next to me. And um, I've been sitting here thinking all day, like, oh my God, I forgot how beautiful lilies smell. And when they're right here from like our local organic flower grower down the road, it is different. And, you know, I wonder with that sort of mentality and mindset, because now it is pretty, you know, there are a lot of people talking about slow food, farm to table, seasonal eating, but back then I would imagine that in your mind, you know, this, this wasn't like the norm. So this idea or this inspiration that you had in France, how did you go home and start to think about translating it into a restaurant where, you know, Americans ate and our expectations were so different? <laughs> well, I was very naive and I came back, but determined to eat like the French determined. I wanted that baguette. I wanted that, those berries. I wanted that experience. And um, I couldn't find it uh, just in my, my, you know, normal uh, food shops. And I, I said, thought, well, what if I opened a little French restaurant Maybe it would come to me. <laughs> That's how naive I was. And I had a couple other friends who felt the same way. And we said, well, let's, let's open a restaurant that feels like you're in someone's home and, and just serve one menu a day, uh, uh, three or four course menu. And uh, if it doesn't work out, then we'll do something else. But let's just try to do this. And my partner, Lindsay's family had a farm. And she said, oh, I can bring things, some things from the farm. But it was really when we met the local organic farmers that we found the taste. And then we never looked back. But we decided right then that we were going to buy directly from them so that we could have that close relationship about what they grew and, and have an understanding of what our restaurant scraps could do for their farm. And we were just very lucky that we met Bob Kennard, who happened to be a regenerative organic farmer back in the early 70s. It was my father in his search for a farm for the restaurant to be part of. He went around California. He went to Davis to ask for all the organic farms within one hour of Chez Penny's. And then he visited them all. And he came back and said, there's only one crazy farmer that would, could really be right for Chez Penny's. And that was Bob Kamal. And he said, there were always weeds growing and he couldn't figure out where the 
where the vegetables were. And my, for my father, who was a neat as a pin farmer, <laughs> he didn't know what the soil meant to the nutrition of the vegetables. He didn't know. We didn't understand that 50 years ago. But of course, it is in the soil. Our nutrition is in the regenerative organic soil. And so um, we were lucky. And Bob would tell us, you know, I'm going to be sending you some nettles and some purslane. And I said, Bob, what are we going to do with those? He said, that's for you to figure out. <laughs> but they're the most nutritious weeds and they're edible. So find a way. Well, of course we did. We ended up making a nettle pizza and it was a huge hit because people couldn't imagine eating nettles that are all prickery at all. But we made them very tasty on a pizza with garlic and olive oil. And people ask about, is it time for the nettles? <laughs> it's so beautiful and purslane, of course, became part of our salads. But we learned so much from that relationship to our farmers. And once the word got out, that we were willing to pay the real price, not a wholesale price. We didn't ask for that. That's what the big companies, the Cisco, ask for from the farmer. And it's not enough money for the farmer to take care of his farm workers or the land. So we wanted to support these precious people and paid them directly and took all of our scraps back to the farms. But the word got out and there must have been 50, 60, 70 farmers that we still have today that we buy from exactly at the season. Mas Masamoto has our peaches getting ready for September. And we, we just love and I do believe it's the reason that the restaurant has remained successful for 52 years is because we are always changing the menu just to really highlight what is the most tasty and it's getting very difficult because of climate and we have to, we've always had this fruit bowl with the best of the fruit in it, no matter what time of year. And this year we have to taste and taste and taste again. We want to buy the fruit from the farmers. So we're, because of the rain, it's had difficulties ripening in the way it always has, but we make it. We use it anyway, we make it into a jam or we pickle it so that we always are using everything the farmers, the ranchers, the fishers have. And it's a beautiful thing to understand how people really eat in very hot places 
like North Africa or, or, or in Iceland, because we're going, we're experiencing climate shock and we aren't going to be able to eat the way we normally have. And it's so important that we collaborate internationally on how to feed ourselves and share our seeds. But it is so important. The regenerative part, as you know, pulls down the carpet into the ground where it belongs. So I think of this way of eating as the most, the only delicious solution to climate change. Really? <laughs> well, that should just be the tagline of the whole movement, right? <laughs> I mean, we want something that is easy to do. And the things that are easy to do are to plant a victory garden. I did that right in front of my house during COVID. And I, I put up a big victory garden sign and people ask me, how do you keep the deer away? What do you plant? And I said, well, they have to eat too. Uh, they don't like garlic, so I plant that out, <laughs> out in front. And I'm always thinking about, about the beauty of the garden. At this time, particularly, I'm looking at, right out at my red redwood tree in my backyard. And I'm always deeply nourished by that tree because it is directly helping climate in that it's pulling down that carbon. I had no idea how important the redwood tree was to our climate, to our health. And it's a beautiful thing to think that, that our trees are so invaluable. And I think about the orange trees that were planted in the, in the streets of Seville. What a beautiful idea that you could have um, those oranges in a public place. And, th and thinking about how every city could be planting edible food that is regeneratively grown in public places everywhere. And we have so much land that could be used in this beautiful way. And we still have in Washington, all of the pamphlets that were printed for every state in the country. What can you grow in your victory garden? These are the varietals that you might want to plant. And I won't ever forget looking at one of these pamphlets, maybe 10 years ago, that had 23 varieties of strawberries in Washington, D.C. And I wanted all 23 <laughs> to be planted. I, I just think biodiversity is my greatest pleasure in cooking, to think we have 10 colors of carrots right now. Every night, you could have a different 
color salad or mix them all together. And children love that, just love that. And, and so that brings me to the edible schoolyard. I know you have some questions about that. <laughs> I 100% do um, because it's such an amazing, amazing idea and what has been achieved in it is incredible. But just like I wanted to ask you to give us a bit of history on how you thought we'd kind of gotten away from the slow food movement and into a fast food movement, I think it's really important to maybe just take a minute to talk about what kids are eating in schools for the most part and what is being served and why that's a problem that you felt needed solving. Well, I have to first say that I was a trained Montessori teacher. I took, um, a year's training in London in 1968. And it was very, it's been extremely important in my whole life. But what her pedagogy was based on was an understanding of our senses and how important they are to, to feeding our minds touching, smelling, tasting, looking carefully, listening, are the way we get information. And very sadly in this fast food world, we are not using our senses. We're on the screen. We aren't going outside. Children aren't, aren't playing in the woods like I always did as a child. I never went inside at all. And then television and then computers and all of these things came into our lives. And it, it has had the effect that Montessori was addressing. Why can children who live in poverty and hunger not learn like other children. And she said they are sensorily deprived. And that became really, really important to me in thinking about education. And it, of course, became obvious that the best way to affect change in the world would be to think about that school lunch. Everybody eats, everybody goes to school or should. So that's the place where we can make universal change. So I figured that, that um, when, I mean, that the best way to enter the public school could be in a very Montessori idea of having a garden classroom and a kitchen classroom, not to teach gardening or cooking per se, but using those spaces to teach all the academic 
subjects. So let's say you're in a kitchen classroom and you're learning about the geography of the Middle East and you're learning what grows where and the countries around it and you're cooking pita bread and hummus and greens. And it's amazing to experience a kitchen classroom like I've done many times over at a school right near me that was the first edible schoolyard project 25, 27 years ago. Because there is joy in the classroom of teenagers. The school, wonderfully named Martin Luther King Junior Middle School, <laughs> had a thousand kids, a thousand kids at that school. And they spoke 22 different languages at home. I never knew it would be such a good test case. But um, the principal of the school invited me to come and beautify the school in some way. He knew it. They didn't have the money to, you know, take care of the land. And so I went and I had the whole big vision. And it was so wonderful because Mr. Smith said, do whatever you want. And I said, Neil, I have to go all the way all the way <laughs> and he says yes and that, that meant that I had to find wonderful teachers who may not be uh, certified mm. to find cooks and gardeners who were extraordinary with children and I was extremely lucky to find them and we started the kitchen, well, we start the garden classroom first. They had a big piece of land that was just full of junk and hadn't been used. It had a portable building on it, and that was all. But we made the portable building into a kitchen classroom. And, of course, we made a garden. But just in doing that, it has built a network around the world of 6,200 schools, which means it's a very hopeful thing because it means that we share these universal values of nourishment, of uh, community, of, of biodiversity, of, you know, just, of, a belief in education and the education of the senses. Montessori's other thing was learning by doing. So we were cooking and we were gardening. And it could be a class in art in the garden. Obviously, math and science and all of that. But I cannot say how important that pedagogy is to our really learning what democracy means. Because when you cook in a classroom like that, every person 
has an opinion. And we have three tables of kids cooking with 10 at each table. And they all use the same recipe. But every table has a little different taste. And it's so beautiful the way that they talk about it. Oh, I think it needs a little bit more hot pepper. I feel like I'm in the kitchen of Chez Panisse. <laughs> but it's that regenerative idea that every little bug and worm in the soil is giving nutrition to the plant. And for us not to talk about that as vital to the health of our children is really impossible to believe in this world right now. When Rachel Carson told us about this 60 years ago, yeah. We're contaminating our land and our sea. She went to Congress <laughs> and she told them and she wrote that beautiful book. And we did nothing. We stopped DDT. That was it. Yeah. So we have to really make this so clear that nutrition is in the soil. And that regenerative farming is the way to pull the carbon down and put it in the ground where it belongs. But without that industrial food system in between the farmer and the school, we'll never be able to learn the way Chez learned from the farmer and the rancher. And the fishers, <laughs> but it, it me and it, it leads me to ask. You know, I I've been in Europe for the last almost twenty years, and when we moved back here, I think the thing that struck me the most, and my husband, who's British, the most, is just the divisiveness in this country about seemingly everything. It's almost like there can't be a topic that doesn't have some sort of argument for and against it within our current population. And I feel though, that the one thing that everyone could probably agree upon is that we want a livable future. We want a stable climate. We want a natural world and we want healthy children. So, you know, because you were in Berkeley in you know the 60s and 70s and you were a part of this activist movement my father was there at the same time and he talks about it a lot and as some as as a time that you know formulated how he thought about the world and how he thought about politics and how he thought about doing things and i guess how have you taken those learnings and your political leanings and these more progressive ideals and brought them into this world that's actually, I think of Chez Panisse and Edible Schoolyard. It's very, it's very gentle, gentle, but very persuasive. You know, it's like, it's beautiful. It's delicious, as you said, but you're talking about quite progressive ideals. Can you say how you think about maybe that becoming a more mainstream idea or how you how you vocalize this to the world or formulate it in your own mind as 
as being something that can bring us together rather than another thing that tears us apart. Well, I think it's very important that we connect all of the people who are doing this around the world. And that's what slow food has meant to me. Um, Carla Petrini, um, you know, slow food is in 150 countries. And when, you know, when I heard uh, Lula talking in Brazil, president, I he gave me great hope because he was collaborating with other presidents to deal with the um, uh, uh, rainforest protection. And I feel like it's very important, and I learned it from the grape strike back in the 60s, that if you want to make a big impression, don't buy the raw food. That's just a starter. Look at the label. Don't buy anything that doesn't say the right words on it exactly. Organically grown. And now regeneratively, I use regenerative with organic because we have very high standards for organic in California. But I, I know that that's what these big corporations need is for us to buy. And if we don't buy it, there's change. And that's what happened during the grape strike in California back there. I mean, it was an abuse of the farm workers. And uh, we just said, no grapes. <laughs> Until this day, I have to know where they were grown, exactly how they were grown in order to buy grapes. Mm -hmm. I had that kind of understanding of what it meant to the land, to the farm workers, every part of it. And so I, I know that two things that are very important to me are this international collaboration and the local activism. We need to be the change we want to make. And we had with Gavin Newsom and all the powers that be in California, we had a big long table at a, a farm on Earth Day last, this past year. And we helped to curate all the food and the farmers were all there. And Gavin had them all speak to us. And we all, we had politicians there, but I think it's important to feed people these ideas. I never go anywhere without a bowl of fruit. And I want to put it on the table for beauty's sake. I want to win people over with taste. And so I think it would be extraordinary if we did a table a long table and we fed the farmers and the teachers a school lunch. I want to do it from Washington to Sacramento. Maybe it could happen this year and I'm hoping it can. But that's 
when you see, you know, it's not just seeing that's believing, it's tasting and it's feeling the connection that we have with each other. And we can't have that on the screen. I wish you were coming to lunch with me at Shaitanese today. Me too. <laughs> All right. You know, it's a different feeling. And once we abandon our dinner table, which happened in the, you know, in the 60s and with the whole way that we, you know, had TV dinners and watched television, we left the dinner table and we left the friendship that we had and we left our families and to think that we live in a country where one in two people is divorced and we wonder who's feeding our children we wonder how we short of housing well that's a big part of it and we need to learn how to be a family at school a big family and so it's it's always been Slope Foods idea of something really positive and beautiful. And that's certainly uh, something that I got from Carla Petrini. And it makes and, oh sorry. No, go ahead. Well, it just I guess for anyone that's listening who maybe is like this is such a beautiful idea, idea, but it's it's not possible at scale, right? Because you're talking about international, and and I think a huge argument that I hear against regenerative all the time is it's just it could never be scalable because it's small scale farmers, it's more expensive. I mean, I know well, I you, love those questions. <laughs> yes, okay, well, great. But I'm I'm going to ask you a big one. But you know, I feel like one of the things that we're talking about a lot with Farmers Footprint and with Zach and with this whole series is the practicalities and realities of scaling regenerative and, and acknowledging that it's not the easiest process in the world, but it is doable. So in your opinion, when there are people who are like, you could never have every restaurant in America serving regenerative food, or you could never have every school in America with a garden serving regenerative food to the students, what would your counter be? Um, that That is a falsehood distributed by the fast food industry. Truly, um, they want you to believe that it's impossible. Kids don't like that kind of food. They don't want to sit down at tables. They, and believe me, the Edible Schoolyard Project has absolutely convinced me that they love it. And yeah, I always say six weeks to kale. But about the farming lie, um, if we didn't, have a big corporation taking the money from the farmers. If we paid them the real cost for their food, they would be extremely receptive. Farming and ranchers, I know that from everybody I've been involved with in California over the years and around the country and around the world. There are people who really care and can't make a living. Well, if your school system became 
the economic stimulus <laughs> for the farmer. Wow. And for the state, it would be amazing. Can you imagine if the school system in Iowa <laughs> just bought all the food in Iowa? It used to be the case. Yes, we have many more people than we had back before 1950. But I know that this is going to take an enlightened president and an enlightened um, a, a head of the Department of Agriculture to say, we are going to do this. Now, the president uh, of France asked the uh, um, uh, the I have to say the scannual address. Um, I met with um, the vice president of France in the Department of Agriculture, and she said that about a year ago, they decided for the schools in Paris that they only wanted to purchase regenerative organic food from within 125 miles from Paris. They are two-thirds of the way to making it. Two-thirds. Now, granted, they have a cultural history in food, and they've always had schools that basically have kitchens. And they do still feed kids sitting down to eat together. But this isn't rocket science. We're talking about, uh, again, including the students in the whole process, helping them to make the decisions about uh, what they'd like to eat. And once they're included, as we have done in the Edible Schoolyard, they're empowered and they really love it. They love to serve, they love to clean up. And I would imagine that there are so many, I left the space at Martin Luther King School so that the parents could come and volunteer at the cafeteria and maybe they would shell peas or beans or whatever it was and they would eat with the students at the end. And we don't use Jimmy Carter's amazing ideas of habitat for humanity. And that is what we're trying to do, is build a habitat for humanity. And that means that collaboration is key. I painted a school once as part of Habitat for Humanity. We painted the school, a hundred people came. We painted inside and out in one day and made a garden all around in one day. We did this. It's like the old barn raising in the United States. The idea that we could lend our hand to a project, and maybe we could do that for the farmers. Maybe we could all come and help harvest yeah. the beans. I mean, what a beautiful experience that could be both for students and for the farmer. I mean, it is something thrilling when I drive by that school and I see it and I say, <laughs> I painted that. I mean, it's, it's that magic that 
can happen when you just light a candle at the table, at the dinner table. Just light the candle yeah. and say, you know, it's, this is a beautiful moment. It, it is. And, you know, it's funny. I think, Alice, the question I want to kind of round this beautiful conversation off with is actually something that you said way back at the beginning, which stuck with me, was that when you were starting Chez Panisse, you wanted it to feel like home, like you were in somebody's house. And for all the people listening who may never have the opportunity to eat at Chez Panisse, could you walk us through what it's like and how you've woven the farmers and the locale and the food and the personality and your ideas around regeneration into this restaurant over the last 50 years and, and paint us a little bit of a picture because I feel like it would just, I just feel like everybody probably is going, oh my God, what's it like to eat at this extraordinary woman's like <laughs> house and 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 how does it feel in terms of of regenerating the food movement well very big question i'm sorry <laughs> it's my last one i had to make it a big one <laughs> i guess i really want people to feel like they're part of the family of chez panisse i want them to feel like they could say to me, oh, that peach wasn't very good. And I would say to them, oh, I'm gonna get you something else. <laughs> Thank you for telling me. Thank you for telling me. I need to know that. And that's why we don't have a door between the kitchen and the dining room because we want people to see what's happening in the kitchen. And I wanted to make the kitchen beautiful enough that you could invite friends in. I wanted, and I wanted the cooks to feel like they were working in a really dignified place. That it wasn't just full of plastic bags and, and, and windowless space and, and, and just stainless steel. I wanted it to be a place that reflected the values of the food. And so we really put tile in the kitchen. When we opened the doors, people in the kitchen could see the sunset coming in and making everybody beautiful in the kitchen. I wanted people to really feel at home. And uh, I had, again, eaten in that kind of restaurant in France where the children were actually in the restaurant. And uh, that, that surprised me. But now that, you know, we have many children who want to come and, and uh, stand by the pizza guy upstairs and learn how to make pizzas, <laughs> I just feel like it's a little extension of the Montessori education too. But it is deeply not just regenerative in the fact that we take our all of our food scraps back to the farm, 
and and bring back that beautiful food. But it's regenerative in the way that we see everybody's position in the restaurant as valuable. The dishwasher is not less valuable than the cooks or the waiters or anybody's working. It's indispensable. His work is indispensable. And it's, it's that that we need to change in the restaurant business. And we've had a real exposure of around the industrial food system during the pandemic, but also about the fast food restaurants and what they're paying people, how they're treating people. And I, you know, I think it's unconscionable, but we have a lot of power centrally located in the president's place. And just planting, you know, that garden behind the White House with Michelle Obama. I was in Rome at the time. It was on the front page of the paper. Michelle Obama plants a garden at the White House. And I I just think that was the back of the White House. But what if they plant the garden on the front? And what if they gave that food to hungry students in Washington, D.C.? But there's so many public lands. And I know that education is the place to make this dramatic change. And I'm very much hoping that the University of California will do that, will change its procurement, will purchase food locally, will make the path for K through 12. I mean, they have brilliance there. It goes around the world. They've, I mean, I know from my experience of being in Berkeley in the University of California in the 60s, I know what can happen. And we need that really sophisticated institution, a public institution that has 264,000 acres of land to show us the way to grow food regeneratively, to nourish the students. I mean, I know the students are ready to participate. Everyone is terrified about climate. And it's a matter of decentralization on all levels. And we can't think, you know, that one size fits all. It doesn't. And we want that inclusiveness. But I can tell you that growing your own food and eating it makes you so proud <laughs> and happy. I just had my fraise de bois out in my garden. Yeah. And because my new grandchild is not there to pick it, <laughs> I get to eat it all. Oh. And that that's that's something that connects you deeply with nature. I think we 
our longing to be reconnected. I think it's our unhappiness is that we have been so forced to look at the screen instead of the redwood tree. And that is, is my great hope. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Alice, and for all of your tireless and incredible work over the last 50 years and for joining us in this series and being so eloquent and visionary about the future generation. <laughs> it's, it's just well, well, uh, thank you so much for giving me this opportunity, but I have to say, it's never felt like work, ever. It's doing what I love. And I think we don't know what that means anymore. We're doing jobs that are meaningless and we're working in spaces that are windowless. We're, we're commuting for hours in rush hour traffic. We're, we're, we're denied a meaningful life. And I heard that from Mario Savio, who spoke in the 60s so eloquently about what education can mean. It opens up the world. We shouldn't be forced into declaring a major. When we go to college, we should take every course, find out whether we love music or art or film or, or biology or science or tech. We need all of that. And that again, I'm sure you felt that way in France, that uh, I, I did. I, students were given, uh, you know, free pass to go to music and art museums. And you sat along the Seine and drank your glass of wine. And I, I just thought, I want to live like this, not just because of the food, yeah. but the beauty of that culture. And every culture in the world has had that. And I just feel like we have to go back there. Yeah. Well, I think I think we can. And I think, you know, I just, it's testament. My husband works on a screen for the majority of his day. And then he slams his laptop <laughs> closed and runs out to the garden. And literally the happiest he is all day is outside yeah. in, you know, I, yeah. it doesn't have to be one or the other too. You know, you can do a job like, you know, he does graphic design exactly. and for to some extent he really loves it and it fills a creative void that he really loves but you know but that doesn't mean you don't you you can't find time to grow some food or you know plant a meadow which we've done or or any of these things so so i think that there is ways to have to have as you say it's not a one size fits all no it isn't and the idea I keep thinking of my friend Ron Finley, the gorilla gardener in LA. I love him. <laughs> and growing your own uh, uh, growing your own food is like printing your own money, and it is that. It is that. But we need the places to plant 
our gardens. Maybe we can't plant them at our home. Maybe it has to be on the rooftop someplace, but we can do this. And we can do it as towns, community, you know, as states. Yeah, we can. But we need that real encouragement from the powers that be. And that's why, you know, I have great hopes for King Charles, <laughs> I have to say, because he taught me at his house out in the country. He taught me how to, how to make one of those, oh God, am I forgetting the name? The, you know, uh, those big hedges between... Oh. What's it called? It, it, it is, it's just called a hedgerow, right? Like a like, hedgerow, how to make a hedgerow. Okay, yeah. he taught me how to make a hedgerow. I thought those were just for separating fields. No, they're like and, really great for- No, I didn't know. And he, he spent at least a half an hour showing how to twist the pieces of wood and the twigs to make a nest for the birds or a place for the bees. And I, I was so impressed by that. And his book, Harmony, really gets into thinking about the planning of cities so that people can be connected to nature. And all of that, I know he believes. And I can't imagine that he won't do something really wonderful and dramatic to address climate. I'm sure he will. Well, as someone who lived in London for a very long time, and I do have a soft spot for King Charles, I have to say, I I love that he taught you about hedgerows because I have a friend that got into regenerative agriculture um, after years in Hong Kong working in PR. He got back to London and he's like, I can't do that anymore. I'm gonna do gardening and farming. And he taught me about that, you know? So it, um, and the importance of it. And he's just got a plot in London, just in zone five. And it's incredible what he is growing in central London. Yes. <laughs> well, the great thing was that during the war, everybody was given a plot of land to grow food. And those plots are still available to people. Same thing happened in in many other countries in Italy too but in England I feel like the whole gardening movement was really almost started there mm. from my point of view because I was very involved with Joy Larkham and Elizabeth David and many other people that were in the food world and I learned, I lived in England for a year, but I always felt like gardening was second nature to the British and they're a small enough country. They could do this for the schools. They could grow food just there, not import anything. And they know how to do it. You know, it's so funny. I feel like you're going to love this. Do you know Riverford uh, in England? It's an organic food delivery service, but um, it was started by a guy named Guy Guy Singh Watson. And anyway, I was at one of their um, 
one of their organic stock stores and just thinking about the mental health crises that's happening with so many young people. And mm -hmm. there's a huge sign when you go into one of their grease greenhouses that says, don't get a therapist, get a garden. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. And I think, Beautiful. Think like, you know, <laughs> yes, like that is, it, it's almost sometimes that simple because I know that it is well. that simple. <laughs> It is. <laughs> you know, it's like save thousands and thousands of dollars and just do yourself a favor and get some plants. It really does work. Well, I wonder sometimes, you know, why kids like hummus and pita bread so much and greens. And I thought maybe that goes back to the beginning of civilization, that maybe we really do have genes in us that that really are connected in that way. And I think gardening is, we got gardening genes in there. <laughs> oh, I think, we're gonna, I think, we're gonna love gardening. Oh yeah. And of course, nature, big time. We're yeah. part of nature, part, and I, yes. <laughs> it all goes back to nature in the end, doesn't it? Well, it does. It does. It's almost, it's almost, you know, it's funny to just round this off, Alice. It's almost like our best solutions and our most effective solutions are our simplest ones. And maybe there's a yeah. real hope in that. Yes. And, and we have to, and what I always wanted to do was be the change we want to make. Just do that thing. And um, I mean, it's like the homeless garden in Santa Cruz. They made a garden for the homeless so that they had meaningful work. The reason that I started a garden in the school was because a woman did a garden in a jail and she called me and asked me if we grow food that's to your standards, will you buy it and support my garden? And I went, over to see it because she insisted I go to the jail. <laughs> and I couldn't believe. I mean, she said, tell Alice uh, about your experience in the garden. And one kid said, I shouldn't be saying anything. But this is my first day in the garden. And it's the best day of my life. And I just said right there and then, if you can do it in the jail, you can do it in the school. And that's how really I felt empowered to do the Edible Schoolyard. But that's how basic it is. Can you imagine growing a sunflower in a jail? <laughs> and this, so you put the seed in and it's 10 feet high. <laughs> it's just so empowering. So beautiful. Gosh, what a story to um to end on. So so thank you yeah. for that hope. Well, and thank you. 